Hi, everyone. I'm Kristen Howerton, a writer and psychotherapist. And I'm Ruth Powell, an admitted workaholic and self-care Luddite. And you are listening to Selfie, a weekly podcast about women learning to take better care of themselves. We think self-care is important, but it can simultaneously be elusive. We certainly don't lack information about it, but we don't always quite get there. So this podcast is dedicated to exploring different aspects of self-care from the silly to the serious. We're looking at health, relationships, beauty, periods, maybe a touch of the random. We also want to look at the hurdles we face that keep us from caring for ourselves like we should. To submit questions to me or Rue, or to Claire, our beauty expert, or BJ, our resident therapist, join us in our private forum by searching Selfie Podcast Community on Facebook. Well, today we are going to be chatting with author Kathleen Smith on the concept of differentiation. She's the author of a new book called Everything Isn't Terrible. And um, we had a really good conversation about differentiation. Tell me, what what is the elevator ride explanation of what differentiation is? <laughs> good question. Well, differentiation is really um, the concept of looking at your own feelings versus being enmeshed and, you know, tangled up in the feelings of other people, which I have to say, um, has been a major challenge for me pretty much my whole life. So it's like letting other people's emotions sort of affect how you're feeling day to day. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. So I have a teenager, um, one of my kids really struggles with depression and some other mental health issues. And I have found that my own mood and my own well-being can be very much tied to this kid's well-being. So I'm not able to sort of, you know, be a parent and be involved um, without getting on the roller coaster ride with them, if that makes sense. And I mean, it's funny because my friend Jen Hatmaker said this to me once. She said, our job as parents is to stand at the exit of the roller coaster ride and hug them, but it's not to ride every roller coaster with them. And that's Ooh. my differentiation struggle is I'm riding every ride with them. So every breakup is my heartache. Every, you know, um, struggle with school is my struggle. I have a hard time differentiating and letting my kids have their own problems without it really affecting my own mood, like really day-to-day mood. I'm wrapped up in this stuff. Do you think that is a part of you being like an Enneagram uh, three-wing two? Is that the two part of it? I think that is the two part of it. I'm also an empath. And, you know, it's funny because I feel like sometimes we'll talk People will talk about being an empath and it sounds like a humble brag, like, I don't know, I'm an empath. I just like really love people. But I have found that this is actually a real liability for me and it's it's not noble. You know, it's not like th- this isn't a great thing to, to right. not be able to differentiate from my children. It's actually kind of messiah complex and codependent, you know? Sure, sure. Um, but I, yeah, I, th- I've always just struggled with letting other people's problems be my own. I don't know. Do you struggle with that? Yeah, I think that I will I will worry and maybe I will fret. Yeah. You know, yes. I, I def- I'm definitely a fretter. Um, yes. And I don't know if that it, – it necessarily entangles up in my – I. sorry. I don't know if that means that I necessarily uh, take those emotions as my own, but then I just feel so badly for whoever is going through something, especially as a mom. If one of yeah. my kids is going through something, um, it – just because I, I love them and I'm worried about them and I don't, you know, I, I I don't know. I think that part is really, really hard because as a parent, how do you 
disconnect from that that feeling. Like I love I love Jen Hatmaker's analogy, but gosh, I would love some uh, practical ways to make that uh, a reality for me. Well, I will say this, uh, uh, Kathleen Smith, the author that we're talking with, I actually found this book to be very poignant because she does offer that practical advice. Like it, I mean, this book was for the warriors and the, you know, the entangled. It, it was very helpful to me. Like it literally came in the mail and I opened it and I was like, oh, oh, this book is for me. Wow. <laughs> like, okay. I'm going to add that to my Amazon okay, list. God. I hear you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she has a lot of good things to say um, in the interview that I had with her that we'll, we'll play um, towards the end of the show. But Rue, how has your self-care been this week? Oh, man, I would actually love some tips from the other travelers that are uh, the, the listeners that are also travelers. Uh-huh. You I had a big travel week. I did. And I find that when I travel, I try, you know, my darndest to uh, still eat well and sleep well because otherwise, you know, I turn into a small monster. But yeah. I, my schedule always, like my routines always get wrecked when I'm on a vacation, when I'm not on a vacation, oh, yeah. when I'm on work travel. Yeah. But then when I come back transitioning into my day to day, it's like, oh, you know what? I should just spend this weekend eating carbs and resting on the couch because I had such a <laughs> I had such a taxing work trip. And then, you know, and I've I don't like it because it feels like it's taking too long to get back into the swing of things again. And if I'm taking a trip every month, which is generally my schedule, it I can't take five days to go, oh well, right. time to get back into the swing of things. So um I am not yet back into my, you know, wake up and work out and eat a healthy square meal, and that should include vegetation. Um, so I, I would say that I probably would give myself uh, not a great score. It would it would not be a good progress report this week. You know, I struggle with the same thing. And it's funny, I'm always really impressed with I mean, I think we even have some mutual friends who do this with the people who even when they're traveling, they wake up and work out in the hotel, or they like stay on whatever diet they're on. Like to me, the minute I get on the plane, I'm like, I'm eating whatever food looks good to me on this plane. <laughs> And then yes. I'm like, I'm not, I didn't, I don't want to pack tennis shoes, so I'm not going to work out. Like, I just kind of throw it all out the window. But I, I am just so impressed with the people who are just like, yeah, I'm just, this is life in a, in a different city. I'm like, it's vacation, even when it's a work trip. <laughs> right. Well, I have a friend who travels a lot for work. And so she just, she uh, committed herself to doing an entire month of Barry's boot camp every single day. And I don't know if you've ever done a Barry's boot camp class, I but it is like it, but it is hard. It is so hard. And she she was traveling internationally. And so she would land in, say, London and go do a Barry's boot camp in London. And I don't know if I lack the kind of discipline <laughs> that these people are uh, harnessing when they do um you know, challenges like this, but I'm always so impressed. And frankly, I hate every hotel gym. I always think they're a little weird. Um, I'm better at eating now only because like I have to be, Um, but I am the same way. It's like I go to an airport and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, $6 for a bottle of water. Sure. That sounds, (laughs) that sounds super normal. Um, So yeah, I I think all of my habits just, it's like I'm in like an alternative universe where anything goes. Yeah. Oh, man. And I just did. um, I'm just coming off of I do a girls weekend at the beginning or middle of January every year, where we get together and we just 
eat and drink and talk and solve all of each other's problems. Um, and we actually all brought our partners to this weekend. Um, but we eat like garbage. I mean, we just, you know, it, that's a big part of it is we just drink and eat a lot. And it's like, I come home and I remember the first day back, I was like starving. <laughs> Like I was like, where's my giant breakfast and then snacks all day? Like, it's really hard to get back to like, okay, I'm not on vacation. I'm like real life now. Yes, yes. No, I, I think it's like our body used, it suddenly gets used to like being treated, you know, I, I don't want to say poorly, but like luxuriously, you know? Well, it's um, like your body gets used to comfort food, I think for sure. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't, so I don't eat breakfast. Um, I don't usually have my first meal of the day till around noon. And you know, is I that think on like, purpose or? Yeah, I guess it's called intermittent fasting, yeah, but I call that. it like just being, I mean, so essentially, you know, so two years ago, I lost a significant amount of weight, um, something like 25 pounds. And in order to stay at that weight, I have to consider my calorie intake. Um, I'm only 5'4". I don't weigh, um, you know, I I weigh within the normal range. But when you do the calculations, you know, it's it's like you should eat between this range of of calories and this range of calories a day. It is not a lot of calories. It's not. I'm 5'4 also. Yeah. Yeah. Splitting it up between three meals. It's like, here's your tiny little baby meal. Enjoy your rabbit food. Yeah. Um, So uh, splitting it up between two meals, I find makes it a lot easier. And I actually, I mean, I I know that there are um, supposed benefits of intermittent fasting too. And so for for me, that's the main one is I allow myself more calories, you know, between the hours of, you know, for lunch and dinner because I'm just nursing two cups of coffee all morning. (laughs) Oh, funny. That's so funny. Yeah, I've done a little bit of intermittent fasting and actually really liked it too. It makes sense to me. Um, And it's one that you can do when you're on a trip because it's not it's not connected to like, I can't eat this kind of food or what have you. Right. And actually, to your point about being so hungry after coming back on your trip, I find that if I eat like a ton of carbs and like go nuts the night uh, the like on any given night, like if I'm going out to like a really nice restaurant that has all my favorite foods, um, the next morning I'm starving, and 100%, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure agree. why. Um, I think there's there some, are some science behind it. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's actually related to like I don't know, like <laughs> bread eating begets bread eating. I'm yes. <laughs> No, you do. If you kick your metabolism into gear as you're going to bed, you are going to wake up hungry because your stomach's been working. I mean, that's what they say why intermittent fasting works because your stomach just chills out like it goes to sleep. And then it's not waking you up in the morning like, hello, feed me. Yes. Yeah. So I, um, it's, well, it's on the East Coast. It's 1230. And I've not yet eaten, but I will uh, once you and I are done chit-chatting. I usually only eat eggs in the morning, only. Mm. Just eggs. Because if I, again, find if I eat carbs in the morning, I am ready for more carbs at 1030 or, you know, 11 before it's even time for lunch. Yeah, no. And that I've <laughs> the biggest thing that I, the biggest habit I had to break two years ago was that I was finding that I, I have like a major sweet tooth. I Me was too. craving, I was craving dessert even after breakfast. I was like, okay, something's, something's yeah. not, something's not great here. Yeah. Um, so I find, you know, just, and I, I also started a coffee habit two years ago. And I think that's made a big change for me too. Um, how is your self care going this week? Um, it's going okay. I got into another insomnia loop, which happens to me from time to time. Yes, which 
looks like I won't sleep and then the next day I'll be really anxious and then I won't sleep again and then the anxiety will peak. So it's just, it's daytime anxiety and then night, followed by nighttime insomnia. Um, and it, when I get into that, it's just, it's a snowball. I mean, it's so hard to get out of because, you know, it, both of them increase the other. Um so I got out of it, but I don't know. I'm struggling. I'm I'm still trying to figure out for me the magic medication um, mm. for my sleep issues. And I have tried so many different things. And sleep meds are just they're not fun, you know. Right. They're, they've got a lot of nasty side effects, or they can leave you tired, um, or they can be addictive. So I have an appointment with my doctor in two weeks just to try to find something new. <laughs> And you've historically always been a night owl, right? I've always been a night owl. And I've always struggled with insomnia. I mean, I'll be honest, before I had kids, I could just call it I'm a night owl, right? Because then you don't have to wake up really early in the morning. I mean, hashtag privilege, obviously, because I work from home, right? So before I had kids, I would just I could sleep till 10 or 11. And then I could work until seven, you know, I just or I'd work at night, I just had a really different life. But now that I have kids, once I had kids, it definitely went from ha ha ha, I'm a night owl to like, oh, my gosh, I like have a problem, right? Because, you know, then you're waking up at seven to get people off to school. Right. And it's well, your eldest indulgent. is in high school, right? Yes. Your eld- so he has to be up super early. He does. I will say, well, actually, luckily, not really. Our high, our local high school starts at eight, which is amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah no, definitely not ours. Yeah, um, I, which is I, super awesome. Yeah. But I do have a kid who has basketball practice at 630 in the morning every day. But he can take himself. We live close enough that my kids can walk to school, which I have to say, if, if there's any parenting advice I can give anyone, it's live close enough for your kids to walk to school. Oh, yeah, we're out in the woods. So if my kids go for a walk, yeah. it's like, hey, look out for the coyotes and bobcats. Oh, it's gosh. Not, yeah. So but do you have a school bus? We do. Yeah. yeah we so, don't have buses because um, it's so compacted. Everyone can uh, walk. Oh, yeah. No, there's a there's a bus. We're So we live in an area where um, – uh, we live in an area where – there's a, a few towns that funnel into a high school. Mm. So by the time that my kids are high school age, that is going to be a really long bus trip in the morning because they're um, bringing they're busing kids in from different towns. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, I guess there's pros and cons to the school bus thing. I know other people whose kids have to wake up like – or they catch the bus essentially like 30 to 45 minutes before school starts. That's rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just imagine like – I'd like to wake up early now, but I imagine that um, when my kids are a little bit older, I will have less of that serene morning time before yes. they're uh, before I'm dragging them out of bed. Totally. Yeah, my kids, I will say my three olders, the high school and middle school student – they wake themselves up and get themselves to school. Like I don't even have to – like my kid who has basketball practice at 630, I don't even wake up. I don't see him at all. <laughs> he just wow. gets out of the house by himself, which is what I said. And same, another kid had the same practice earlier this year. And I'm like, if you want to do that, you're waking yourself up. Like I'm not getting up at 630. <laughs> well, that's such that's such great discipline then. So they like yeah. they don't miss – they don't miss practice? No. They're all, all three, all three have had that basketball schedule in the morning and all three of them have successfully gotten themselves to school at 630 by themselves every morning. Yeah. Maybe they need to do the, uh, the two thumbs up on like whatever alarm clock they're using. Oh, I need that. I need that in my life. It's the Alexa. Oh, oh. 
So my kids have an, have an Alexa, and um, I find that I'm like shouting from down the hallway, like, Alexa, stop, because it's not waking them up. Oh. Um, but yeah, maybe I need one for me. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, do you not have your own Alexa? I don't. Uh, like we've got the kitchen one, and yes. I just kind of I just kind of count on my phone, but which is also a bad thing because then I always have my phone nearby. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, that's a rough one. I put I actually put an Alexa in my room so that I wouldn't put my phone by my bed, but my phone is still by my bed. <laughs> yeah, no, but maybe I, maybe I would do that because my excuse has been, oh, well, I need it for an alarm clock, but right. if I have an Alexa, then maybe mm-hmm. I can like leave my phone charging in my office and then I don't have to worry yeah. about it. Ooh, that's good. I'm I think I'm going to do that and I will give you an update. Well, maybe we should hold each other accountable and I will then put my phone out of my room and rely on the Alexa. Well, the funny thing is, I'm three hours ahead. I'm just going to start recording, like I'll uh, gear up the podcast recording and just start doing wake up calls and see what you're like first thing in the morning. <laughs> oh, not good. It's I'm not a morning person. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you have for um, two thumbs up today? Okay. I have two very non-sexy recommendations. Ooh, can and the reason why they're non-sexy is because they're very practical. Yeah. And one is these teeny tiny little um, sunscreen sticks. They're by Bear Republic. They're mineral sunscreen. Oh, yeah. And I like them because they're so small. And if I keep one in uh, my fanny pack mm-hmm. or um, <laughs> uh, in my truck or just like in my pocket or in my makeup bag, I can always have a few on hand. And I have um, – I'm just generally kind of bad about sunscreen. I'm, you know, t- tan-ish. Maybe I'm beige. Like I never burn. Mm-hmm. And so I've ignored skincare for a long time. And I know that's not good for a variety of reasons. So – Having this, I just kind of – it's just a stick. I don't have to worry if, like, my hands are super clean. I just kind of rub it on my face. Yeah. Well, I do have to, I do have to blend in a little bit. but And there's, like, the slightest um, white cast. But I put it on under makeup and – or you just blend really well. And it's – I'm good to go. And so now these are, these are tiny enough that um, – I, you know, have a few on hand. So I always have one when I travel. Um, and I always have one like in my uh, adopt kit and one in my makeup bag. And they're great. And so I feel like my dermatologist would give me a thumbs up for this one because I've been really, really good about wearing sunscreen, even in the winter when it's gloomy outside, because apparently your skin can still be affected by um, overcast days. Yes. So that is, um, I'm giving myself a gold star for that because yes. it means that I've been wearing sunscreen every day. That's awesome. And then the other thing is um, I like this idea that self-care just isn't about treating yourself, but like setting your life up in a way that you know it kind of caters to how you are. Um, so for example, uh, you and I were chatting about this the other day. Like I will only book an aisle seat uh, on a plane because I like to stay hydrated and I don't want the anxiety of like climbing over people or asking them to move. So oh, totally because I know that about myself, I just always book an aisle seat and yeah. I never have to worry about it. And that's one thing removed from my head. Um, I like writing with a nice pen, but uh, nice pens generally are super expensive and they get lost or a kid steals them. So uh, as a writer, uh, I still use pen and paper and I love um, Pilot G207s and I buy them in bulk mm-hmm. and I keep them everywhere. They're like 
there are things that I keep everywhere, like bobby pins or hair ties. And Pilot G207s are some of them. And I will tell you that I never feel more put together than when I'm out somewhere and someone says, oh, do you have a pen? And I just produce this wonderful pen. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel... I feel so smug. It's like, yes, I am the kind of person that carries two mm-hmm. Pilot G207s on her at all times. Here you go. You may borrow it. That is um, really grown up. That is like peak adulting, having I, a nice pen. I, yes. And it's not – I mean, like, so nice pens are like, what, Mont Blancs that are a couple hundred dollars. I do not – that is not how I live my life. I live my life – like, if it weren't for these, I would probably be doing, like, five-cent big sticks. Um, but still, it's much better than, like, what has happened to me where someone's like, do you have a pen? And I pull out – and it's like a hotel pen that's crazy cracked and there's like a little bit of used gum on it from the bottom of my purse. <laughs> like the mom purse, like, oh, there's hairs sticking off of it. Uh, I feel like it, it makes me feel very grown up in meetings too, that I just always have my own pens nearby and I'm not using like whatever conference room pens are available. Totally. Um, it's kind of like it, it feels a little bit like wearing heels to a meeting um, yes. for me. That's really funny because I also have a pen. Mine is La Pen. Have you used that one before? I haven't. It's. I think it's really similar to the one you're using. Is yours like a really, really skinny felt tip? It's a. It's a skinny gel ballpoint. Oh, okay, okay. This one is a felt tip, but I am also the same way. And I have told my children that they cannot touch any pen that says Le Pen on it. Like, I'm so mean about it. I'm like, these are not for you. You may not touch. Well, it's funny because now it becomes like a special treat where if like, let's say I have a kid who's got a bunch of essays due and she's like super struggling. I'll say, look, why don't you sit at your desk and I'll make you a cup of tea. And do you want a pilot G2? And they're like, it's like, so funny. It's okay. Admittedly, it's very nerdy, but they get into it. And this, maybe I'll say this for another time, but I'm also into uh, the pencils that Steinbeck used only because I can say, hey, I'm writing with the pencil that Steinbeck used. Um, and they're, heck yeah. They're, they're very cool. I'll, I'll link those two just for fun <laughs> in case, in case there are people that are like, yeah, I want to get down with a Steinbeck pencil. Yes, I do. Actually, I want to. How about fancy. how about you? What are your two thumbs up for this week? Okay, well, my first is so I have been trying different meal delivery services. I I will give myself an F on making lunch. I'm the worst. I will make a nice dinner for everybody, but when I'm alone by myself in my house, I don't make lunch and then I often don't eat lunch until I'm like starving and then I'm like Uh. rummaging through the fridge. So at the beginning of the year, I was like, you know, I'm going to treat myself and I'm going to try a meal delivery service just for Monday through Friday. So, you know, five meals a day uh, or a week, right? Of just like something that's you just throw in and eat. So I tried this plant-based meal delivery service called Vistro, V-E-E-S-T-R-O. And I was a little like, I was a little trepidatious about it being like vegan, right? Because I'm like, ah, I kind of like my proteins. Sure. Um, but I have to say it's been really good. I really like it. They're, they're frozen meals, um, but they're prepared in such a way, I don't know, probably flash, fr- flash frozen or something so that they don't taste like, you know, like a lean cuisine. They're right. really nice and really good. But the one of theirs that I really loved is they had this like soba Asian noodle salad with like a peanut sauce. It was so good. Um, And then they use, you know, tofu and tempa and things like that um, as a sort of meat substitute. But they do a good job of it not tasting like a meat substitute, if that makes sense. Right. So this is different from Blue Apron in that it's not here are the ingredients, you make it yourself. No, no. This is like, here's the meals that you can 
that you can put in the microwave r- right before you eat, which is what I needed for lunch. Right. Right. So now you're eating. So you, how long have you been using this? A week, just a week. Oh, and so so what what benefits have you found? Because as someone who largely works from home when I'm not traveling, this is a struggle for me too. So you just like take one out, yeah. you nuke it, and now you're eating like a square meal. I mean, it's for me, the difference is night or day. It's the difference between me like scrounging in my fridge and winding up eating like half of a leftover and then some chicken nuggets that I throw in the air, you know, versus like it's just one meal. It's like one and done. It's perfect. It's quick. And when I know that I have that in the freezer, then like at noon, when I start to feel hungry, instead of going like, oh, I don't I don't feel like dealing with this or thinking about it, like I'll just go and make it. Yeah, I am really, I, I've, got, I've become really bad about just not feeding myself well during yeah. the day because again, yeah. it's like, it's just me. So I'm just taking like random handfuls of stuff Same. out of the fridge. There's actually a great McSweeney's um, article about freelancers yes. and, and, and uh, about like how he's, this guy is just like eating like, well, I had yogurt and I think I dipped a pretzel in it and it's really, really funny. Yes. We ha- we'll link that up in the show notes. I love that one. <laughs> yeah. So good. Um, That's cool. I'm going to look into that just because, frankly, I could use more vegetation in my diet. Um, But then also just uh, being a little bit more mindful about eating well during the week. Yeah, it's hard. I I don't know. I just find it very difficult. And I'm not a great planner. So just to have a company that's sending it to me is really nice. What's your other? And then my other two thumbs up is a migraine stick. Do you get migraines? I do not. I do not. Yeah, I didn't. And I have to say that as I've kind of, as I passed my 40s, I started getting them more often. And I think they're horm- hormonal. My mom got migraines. I know they're hormonal. They, they're predictable, like same time every month. Uh. Um, but this little migraine stick, it's great. It's like a roller ball, and you just roll it onto your temples. Hold on, Kristen. Your audio just went really funky. Okay. Um. But this migraine stick is great. It's like a little roller ball. It's the size of a chapstick. And you just roll it onto your temples. And it's got this sort of mint, like minty eucalyptus scent. Um, and it just, it, I don't know, it feels really nice. I'm not sure that it completely cures the migraine. Um, but it's definitely, I don't know, like I keep it on my desk and I actually use it a lot if I'm feeling like eye strain or anything like that. It's just kind of like a nice refresher. Okay, I am going to turn things over to BJ Hickman, our resident therapist who is answering a listener question. If you ever have questions that you would like BJ to answer, you can pop them into the Selfie Facebook group, or you can go to selfiepodcast.com and find an anonymous form. Today's question's a tough one, and I don't want to launch into it without giving a disclaimer and maybe a trigger warning uh, that the question is about rape, um, and it's about rape by a close friend. So if this is a topic that is uncomfortable for some of you, then just know that we'll probably spend about five minutes here and you can kind of skip over this part of it if you need to. Here's our, our listener's question. I was raped by a now formerly close friend two months ago. I reported it and cut off all contact with him the following day. Other than frequent nightmares, I feel mostly numb and the few friends and family who know seem to be more upset than I am. Is this normal, or should I be concerned? 
I have a demanding job and haven't been able to take any time off, which could be acting as a distraction from what happened. First of all, to the listener who submitted this question, I just want to say I'm so, so sorry that you've been through this. It appears to me, and I'm this is not a diagnosis, I'm certainly not qualified to diagnose you, but it sounds like you might be experiencing what we call dissociation, which is a protective measure that the brain takes post-trauma in order to protect itself from having to relive the experience, from being affected, interrupted by it. Life goes on, um, and dissociation has a way of allowing us to let life go on. And so the challenge with it is that it also inhibits your ability to process and heal from this very severe trauma that you've experienced. And while it may seem like no big deal right now, while you're numb from it and whatever other symptoms you may be experiencing, you may feel a little disconnected from your emotions. Situations that typically make you happy may not make you as happy as they did before. You may have a hard time connecting to your emotions um, to an emotion of sadness. Um, if you're typically someone who cries at commercials, maybe you're not crying at commercials or movies or other sentimental things. Um, usually, like you said, that numb feeling, it's kind of universal. Brene Brown talks about the fact that when we numb, we can't selectively numb. We numb the good with the bad. And if that's indeed what's happening, it's really crucial that you find a way to connect to the experience. And I would absolutely encourage you to do this with the help of a professional. There are modalities for treating trauma that don't require you to relive it. We re- Retelling a trauma story can often re-traumatize us. And so a, a gifted trauma specialist therapist, um, someone who is who has a specialty in trauma. Not every therapist is trained in trauma. So it's important to find a therapist who does have that um, specialty, can implement certain somatic um, modalities that allow you to process this experience without necessarily having to relive it or talk about it. Um, I mentioned in my introduction that I do experiential work. Somatic, any kind of somatic modality is experiential in nature, and it is for the purpose of bypassing words, because trauma takes our words from us, which is a part of dissociation. It's disconnected you from the story of what happened to you, and you've got a clean, simple um, narrative that you can tell very clearly. But my question, my answer to the question, should I be concerned? Not worried, concerned, but yes, concerned enough to address it. There's actually a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Dr. van der Kolk was one of two or three psychiatrists who came up with the PTSD diagnosis. That diagnosis didn't exist before the Vietnam War. Men in previous wars experienced PTSD, but they didn't talk about it. They came home and hid it from their families, from each other, from everyone. The Vietnam vets were the first ones to come home and talk about it. And the psychiatrists began to see this repetitive behavior coming forward with these soldiers and when they were coming home. And that's when they came up with the diagnosis of PTSD, of post-traumatic stress disorder. And so Dr. Vanderkolk's book on 
The Body Keeps the Score talks about the fact that trauma lives in the body. Trauma actually stores in the lower right front lobe of your brain. And we call it the trauma trap. And it's very disconnected. PTSD disconnects it from the electrical circuit is what I like to call it of your brain, where all the different lobes have the ability to talk to each other about what's going on in the body and around you and help you to regulate. And when you're triggered by a post-traumatic experience um, or a trauma experience post-trauma, um, it activates that part of the brain where that trauma is stored and it begins to make you feel like the trauma is happening again. And that's what PTSD feels like. It's like a reliving of it. So the flashbacks that the soldiers would have um, that were so disruptive to their lives was that part of the brain releasing this information. And this, the hard thing about it is you don't have any way of knowing what will cause your brain to side, suddenly decide to release it. And you don't want to be alone somewhere in a fragile state or a vulnerable place um, when that memory decides to make itself known to you and kind of tap on your shoulder and ask you to pay attention to it. So I would really encourage you now, while you're in this particular space, to see someone about what happened for, with you and um, address that issue so that it loses its power over you. Trauma is absolutely treatable. It's absolutely healable. It will stay with you. We can't, can't undo it. We can't bury it. But when we process it, I have a friend who says we can't heal what we won't feel or what we don't feel. And if we'll allow ourselves to sit in it, and I can promise you one thing, you will survive the feelings. Surround yourself with people who understand and care about you. Work with a good professional. And no matter what you have to go through to heal this, you will be okay. And healing from it gives you the tools when that memory does try to show up to be able to regulate it in a way that it doesn't traumatize you again and it feels like something just happened to you one time not like something that is threatening to happen again and that's what I would hope for you so I hope that's helpful good luck Okay, well, as you guys know, we have been restructuring the show a bit, and one of the new segments that we are adding is Ask the Esthetician with our good friend Claire Boyce, or Claire Gilchrist, I should say. I've kept Boyce. Oh, you've kept Boyce? I've kept Boyce, Okay, I wasn't sure. I decided that's my name, and I'm sticking to it. Well, yeah, I get it. I think when you get married slash remarried, and you've kind of had a last name for a long time that your kids have, it's hard. Let's be honest. I just don't want to go to the Social Security office. (laughs) I wouldn't either. Like, I'm not making this, like, big statement. I'm just lazy. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I think I would be the same way. So, anyway, we have um, we are taking reader questions from you guys for Claire. Anytime you want to ask her a question, you can either ask it in the Facebook community group or there is a form in our show notes that you can yes. peek at and ask anonymously if there's a question you don't want to attach your name to. I really love the weird questions. Oh, I know. I mean, going back to, like, I think over a year ago, the vajayshal. I mean, there's nothing you guys can't ask. <laughs> Seriously. And Claire is an esthetician, but she is also, um, you know, she's all, she's always down to um, discuss 
weird new I'm a doer of all things. things. Um, and also Claire is a professional organizer. I so it, you can come to her with your organization questions. But our first question for you, Claire, is um, this is from a reader who says, I've been considering Botox for a while and feeling closer to being ready to try it. Any tips? At this point, I'm mainly focused on my forehead and 11 lines. My first thought is do it. 100% do it. <laughs> Botox is the greatest thing to happen to, in the beauty industry, in my opinion, in the last, I'd say, 20, 25 years. There is nothing that is going to work better for fine lines and wrinkles than uh-huh. Botox. There's no cream. There's no treatment mm-hmm. better than Botox. Well, but let's clarify. If you already have the fine lines and wrinkles, it's not going to treat them. It's going to prevent them, right? Not necessarily. Okay. Because when you stop expressing in a certain way, mm-hmm. a lot of those... I'm not talking about really, really, really deep set, deep set lines. Yes. I'm talking about more of the frown lines, the crow's feet, and the above your brow, those long lines. You really, you will, really will see them go away. Mm. For some of us who have deep set lines in the 11s. Yes. Between the eyebrows. Why are you looking at me? Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes you do need to have a little filler there as well. Uh Uh-huh. But going back to Botox, if you're a first, a first timer, I recommend starting out with about 25 units. And that should, for most people, fill those lines between the eyebrows. Okay. A couple things you want to think about. I will always go to an RN before I go to a doctor. Mm-hmm. An RN who is an injector has touched so many more faces yes. than a physician has. It's so true. They will take more time with you. Mm-hmm. And they will really go over realistic expectations. Mm-hmm. So find somebody who has great reviews in your area or someone's, you know, sometimes I see people and I will flat out ask it, who did your lips? Like, <laughs> I want to know because I, I see the result and uh-huh. I want the same type of result. Yeah. Number two, preparing yourself for Botox. Okay. If you're past due for a facial, you have a lot of dead skin, invest in a facial first. Start- I love that, like, past due for a facial. Like, <laughs> I- I think I've lived my entire life past due for a facial. Is that something we're supposed to be doing regularly? Well, if you're using exfoliating products, no. I think I had a facial one time. But you're using products like, okay, like a drunk elephant is a yes, great example. I am. You're using like salicylics. You're yes, using glycolics. We want to make doing. sure that there is less dead skin on our face before yep. we're injecting. Your results are going to be better. Got it. Also, bruising. Expect to have a bruise. Really? Because and if you have a big event coming up, please do not get your Botox the Wednesday before right. that Saturday. Right, right, right. There's a lot of veins in our face, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter how scaled the injector is, mm-hmm. it can happen. Got it. So make sure that you're planning ahead. Okay. Things like Arnica, mm-hmm. things like bromelain. Right. And, you know, you can get these things through your diet too. Lean proteins, um, fresh pineapple juice will really yep. decrease your chances of bruising. Got it. But I cannot recommend enough. Any woman over the age of 25, Botox is your friend. (laughs) So if you were on the fence, I look forward to hearing about how it went. (laughs) Okay, well, I am now chatting with Dr. Kathleen Smith. She is the author of Everything Isn't Terrible, um, which is a book that I have really been enjoying. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Okay. So first off, I have to ask the question, what made you write a book with the premise that everything isn't terrible? Are a lot (laughs) of us walking around feeling like things are terrible? (laughs) 
Well, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., which is Ugh. one of the most anxious cities in the world, I would argue. And, uh, you know, I wanted to, to have a book that I could recommend or hand to my therapy clients that would help them sort of think about what it looks like to live a less anxious life and have less anxious relationships. So, yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of us are dealing with anxiety right now. I mean, I think that there's some that's just natural in the in, um, you know, our daily lives, but it's just there's a lot going on with our government and society that, you know, feels like there's kind of a low grade anxiety that we're all swimming in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have access to so much information and there's a plus side to that and there's a downside to it as well. Well, I loved reading your book. I am a licensed therapist as well. And just right from the beginning, when you started talking about Bowen, I was like, oh, here we go. (laughs) I was pretty excited. Um, I was nerding out a little bit. But can you just give us a, a rundown of this I mean, obviously, people should read the book so that they can get the full scope. But give us a rundown of the idea of differentiation. Yeah. So um, so for those who aren't familiar with Bowen theory, Bowen was kind of the father of, of family psychotherapy or family therapy. And he had this idea that there were sort of two variables that affected kind of how well a family was doing or how well a person was doing. And the first one is just anxiety, you know, how anxious <laughs> a group of people are. And the second one was how differentiated they were. And, you know, it's a scientific term, but, you know, his understanding of it was that more differentiated people kind of had an easier time knowing their own thinking and accessing that thinking when things were really stressful, <laughs> you know, or when yeah. they were in, in the middle of a crisis. They, you know, everyone else's anxiety is not quite as contagious when you're able to be a little more differentiated, if that makes sense. Other people's emotions don't cloud what you think about what you should do or, or how you should act in a situation. Absolutely. And I loved there was a section where you talked about kind of being reactive Um Versus, you know, responding more from differentiation. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah, so it's something I I ask my clients to think about, you know, if you're reacting to a situation or are you responding to a situation? And reacting is that like anxious autopilot that we all have that just wants us to calm a situation down as quickly as possible. So like, you know, our reaction could be like, oh, okay, I'm going to get out of here or avoid this person or... I'm just going to take over because my kid's making a mess and I can't handle it now, right? Like those could be sort of reactive responses. Um, But, you know, not necessarily, that's not necessarily the best way, you know, to respond to a situation. Sometimes the, the quickest fix isn't necessarily the best solution. And so part of dealing with anxiety is figuring out, you know, when do I need to turn off my autopilot and just like, sit in that uncomfortableness while I figure out a better Mm. way to handle it. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned that I really liked so much was, you know, that you're differentiated when after you've had a conflict or a difficult conversation, you're not kind of spinning on what I could have done differently or what I should have said that you can just sort of walk away and be like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And I think, You know, it also being differentiated also means just recognizing that you're going to fail a lot of the time when you're trying to do something different or when you're trying to be mature in like a tricky situation that, 
you know, most of us, most of the time are just kind of on autopilot, but those, you know, those few times you can really access your thinking and figure out kind of how to be the most mature person in the room or the calmest person in the room, you know, it makes you want to do it more. Yeah. But it's so hard. It is. It is hard. And I really appreciated, you know, I feel like this is such an accessible book. I mean, you've written it to so that anyone can kind of approach it. It's, it's not really clinical and you're very vulnerable in the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, a lot of self-help books, um, would, they're great, but they're not necessarily based in a, in a theory. And then a lot of theory books are very boring or too academic and too inaccessible. So I wanted to really take at least the theory that I use and make it really practical and understandable for people who maybe want to work on, you know, some anxious relationships in their life. Absolutely. Now, help um, help people understand what's the difference, because people might be hearing this word differentiation and think like, well, is that a lack of intimacy or is that like, um, you know, not being attached to people? What's the difference between differentiation and, say, um, detachment or, you know, pulling away from your loved ones? Right. So a lot of times when people learn about differentiation, they think like, oh, am I supposed to be some sort of cold robot who doesn't care about other people or what they think or, you know, and that's not true. The truth is that it actually allows you to have more intimate and closer relationships because you're less affected by other people's anxiety. You can stay in the room with them when they're distressed. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You can refrain from trying to control or manage them. And that really helps you become closer to your spouse, you know, to your partner, to your family, uh, because you're not trying to function for them. So, you know, it's it it is the opposite of detachment because you're in the room, you're staying in contact Mm -hmm. with them, Mm -hmm. but you're not trying to calm them down. You're just calming yourself down, yeah. which is, is usually more effective. Absolutely. And and learning to recognize your own feelings and your own needs and your own reactions to things instead of just responding based on what you think other people want you to say or think or do. Exactly. I feel like so much of our brain space goes into trying to read people's minds uh-huh. <laughs> or, ge- or, or, or guess how they're going to react. And that's such wasted energy because we really... We really can't know that. We can't, but we sure try, don't we? (laughs) Oh, we do. You know, (laughs) and and sometimes we get it right, but it's just, you know, knowing your, I call it knowing your own mind versus trying to mind read everyone else is, is usually more effective. So good. So your, your book is kind of broken up into segments of like looking at how this affects relationships and then looking at how this affects your job and then looking at how it affects kind of the world at large. Talk to me about how... Um, differentiation plays into productivity versus procrastination in the workplace. Yeah. So in the chapter on procrastination, I talk about how, you know, we usually think of procrastination as a character flaw. You know, if you'll just read the right self-help book or, you know, the right time management book, you're going to become like a productive person. But, you know, a lot of our productivity has to do with our relationships. You know, are you trying to please this imaginary audience, you know, that is going to judge you if you fail or you don't do a good job. And that focus on like, you know, we just talked about everyone else's reactions can really stall your productivity and help you, you know, it makes you freeze up. Um, And so being able to focus on yourself and what it is you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to communicate, although that is really hard, 
Um, I think recognizing how that other focus kind of gets you into trouble can be useful for people because I don't think we think of procrastination as having to do anything with relationships, you know, especially if you work at home or you don't interact with a lot of people, but we're always trying to impress people, right? Like we all have that person we went to high school with or oh, <laughs> even, totally. if we don't, even if we don't talk to them anymore, right? Yeah. Um, or an imaginary audience uh, or people we don't know online, right? Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> relationships affect what we do and how we perform whether we realize it or not. Absolutely. Now, you have a whole chapter also dedicated to smartphones and social media. Talk to me about why that's so important. Yeah, well, I think people always ask me, they're like, you know, are we more anxious because of technology? And I don't think that, you know, the way I think of it is, is that technology enables us to do what we've always done as humans just faster. So, if my way of calming down is to complain to a friend, like mm-hmm. texting them make, makes that even easier, right? Mm. Um, or if my way of managing my anxiety is to get approval or attention, right? Social media makes that really accessible as well. So it can kind of get in the way of building up that own abil- your own ability to calm yourself down yeah. or to, to, to access your own thinking because everyone else's attention and approval is just so accessible to us mm-hmm. because of because of our phones because of social media mm-hmm. absolutely and so what are some practices just some you know general practices and I know you go into more detail in the book but for people who want to push into differentiation a bit more yeah you know the biggest thing I talk about you know with my clients and in everything isn't terrible is just being curious you know we we are so hard on ourselves and and when we're not curious, we're not using the part of our brain that's built for problem solving you know so if you can go into your day or if you're going home to visit family or if you're going into work, just being willing to observe what it is you do when you freak out or when you're annoyed with somebody or when you're anxious and to just make note of that, you know, and to over time be able to observe that, that autopilot Hmm. and then really, really evaluate it and go, okay, well, what's, is there an alternative here? Yeah. (laughs) You know, what am I aiming for if I'm going in and I'm a little bit calmer and a little bit more mature than everyone else around me? What does that look like? And can I can I take the steps to try and kind of operationalize that in my day to day life? But if you're not curious about it and you can't really cut yourself a little bit of slack, it's really hard to do anything differently. Yeah. Well, one thing I really appreciated about the book is, you know, at the end of every chapter, you you have some time for reflection for people to kind of look at themselves, observe what their what their um, maybe strengths or areas of improvement are kind of evaluate that kind of thing. I really liked that part of the book because it felt like it was giving me tools, you know, to walk away and kind of, I don't know, like have have better perspective on myself. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of what I just described. The tools are like, okay, how are you going to pay attention to yourself? Evaluate that. Is that who you want to be? What's what's the alternative? Who do you want to be? And then what are opportunities to kind of interrupt that autopilot in your day-to-day life? So I really wanted to have those questions for people, you know, because it's not a super long book, but I think it's something that people can kind of come to at different points in their life, Mm -hmm. different challenges they have and go, okay, let me look at these questions and see if this is something I can start kind of tinkering with day-to-day. Absolutely. 
Well, I am so glad we got to chat, and I'm really sincerely so glad I got introduced to this book. I I really loved it. I mean, it was very timely for me personally. Oh, thank you. Um, And I really hope that readers will check it out. Where can people find, I know the book is sold everywhere books are sold, but where can people find you online? Yeah, so if they go to my site, uh, KathleenSmith.net, I actually have a free weekly newsletter about anxiety that people can sign up for there if they want. Uh, And I'm also on uh, Twitter at Fangirl Therapy. Fangirl Therapy, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Chris. It was fun. Thanks for joining us. Continue the self-care conversation with us over at Instagram at at Selfie Podcast. And make sure to join our uber supportive community that we love on Facebook by searching for Selfie Podcast Community. You can also visit our website to check out the resources we've talked about in each episode at selfiepodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe to Selfie on iTunes so that you can catch up with us next week. Special thanks to Shepherd Audio for providing our music. Take care.